May the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Amen. You may be seated. Last Thursday was the Ascension Day, the day of the church year where we celebrate together the fact that our Lord Jesus is not just, he's not just died for our sins, Good Friday, he's risen from the grave, Easter. He's not just risen either, but he is ascended to the highest heaven, seated at the right hand of God the Father, above all rule, power, and authority. And from thence he shall return to judge the quick and the dead. It's a glorious day full of celebratory songs. We just sang one, crown him with many crowns. But we might be left with two questions in the wake of the ascension of Christ. First question might be, why did Jesus ascend into heaven? Have you thought about that? Jesus lived among uh, his disciples, ministered, was crucified, then he rose. Why didn't he just stay here? Why did Jesus ascend above the heavens? We might have wished him to stay, perhaps. A second question we might have in the wake of ascension is, uh, If Jesus has ascended, if he is seated at the right hand of God, having all rule and authority, uh, all powers subjected to him, why are things so hard? Right? Jesus reigns and a friend dies of cancer. Jesus is Lord, and yet earthly authorities do not acknowledge that lordship too often and oppose him. Jesus is seated at God's right hand, and yet we are witnessing a uh, secularization of the Western world, church attendance declining, once faithful churches and institutions succumbing to an ever more secularizing culture that is hostile to God. If Jesus is ascended, Why are things so hard? And why did he ascend anyway? With great sensitivity, the gospel reading appointed by the 1662 Book of Common Prayer, following an an older tradition for this Sunday after Ascension, addresses these very questions. It's as though the saints of old knew We might have those sorts of questions after celebrating the Ascension. And so it is between Ascension and Pentecost, we have the Sunday after the Ascension. It's what we might call an Ascension reality check. I invite you to turn now to John chapter 16, verse 1, as we consider the words of our Lord Jesus this morning. To set uh, the stage here, the setting for this text, it's the night in which Jesus was betrayed. 
the first Monday Thursday before Good Friday. Jesus had finished his last supper with the disciples, and they're now walking to the Mount of Olives, where he knows he is going to be publicly betrayed into the hands of sinners and delivered to his death. Okay? This is his farewell discourse. And here's the thing. The disciples don't even know it. You know, God bless them. They still don't understand what is going to happen. They still don't understand the significance of his coming, who he is, what he came to do. They don't understand that the Messiah must suffer and die for sin and only after that come into glory. And only after that would come the fullness of the kingdom. And so Jesus is giving his farewell discourse, preparing his disciples for what lies ahead and they have no idea what lies ahead. But Jesus does. And he wants to prepare them for it. Friends, we don't always know what's in our future, do we? But Jesus knows. And he wants to prepare us by his words this morning so that we can face what's coming. Are you willing to listen? Let's listen to him together. Jesus says in chapter 16, verse 1, I have said all these things to keep you from falling away. The Greek word behind the word falling away is scandaliza. It's where we get our English word scandalize. It means to cause someone to stumble. It can be used literally, which is likely not Jesus's intention here. Um, but it can be used metaphorically in a few different ways as well, each of which are possible here. It can refer metaphorically to causing someone to be deeply troubled or bewildered or upset in the sense of tripping someone up or causing someone to take offense. It can also refer to being made to stumble in the sense of being made to fall into sin or error. Finally, it can be uh, referring to being made to stumble and fall such that you fall away. You fall away from the faith. You turn away from Christ, the Christ you have professed in apostasy. Jesus doesn't want his disciples to become troubled bewildered, confused, or upset. He certainly doesn't want them to fall into sin or error or by any means to fall away from him. Why might they be tempted to do so? To answer that, we need to look at what Jesus has been telling his disciples and especially, we should look to chapter 15, toward the end, beginning in verse 18. Jesus has been preparing his disciples for the hatred of the world. He says, If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, 
Therefore, the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will also keep yours. These are hard words from Jesus, aren't they? I don't see these on coffee mugs or t-shirts or on the walls of Christian-owned businesses written in cursive. We don't have a whole lot of those here in Metro Milwaukee, but they are out there. Phil Shade runs one in Sauterton. I didn't see this verse up there. though. I, I, I didn't see, you know, the world will hate you up there. Hard words from Jesus. And yet necessary words from Jesus. Why would he tell us something like that? Well, he says to keep you from falling away. To keep you from being scandalized, bewildered, confused. When the hatred of the world comes, you're ready for it. Jesus told you beforehand. Jesus tells us, suffering awaits us. If you follow me, you must pick up your cross and come and die. Remember what Paul said in Philippians two weeks ago? He wants to know Christ and the fellowship of his sufferings. Jesus was hated by the world. Do you expect better if you are his disciple? You, the master's servant, do you expect better treatment than your master? He who is worthy of more honor. So do not be shocked. Do not be scandalized. Do not fall away when you're following Christ. And then you find that your friends and family or co-workers who do not follow Christ begin to distance themselves from you. Do not be surprised. Do not be caused to stumble when you begin vocalizing your faith at, in Christ at work. And then shortly thereafter, your boss meets with you and says, you know, you're not really quite in alignment with our company's core values, our culture here. This summer, I want us to be intentional about evangelism as individuals and as a church. We hope to see people come to Christ and come to know Christ. I heard stories about that very thing at Synod from fellow ministers. It happens, okay? We hope to see that and we work towards that. We pray for it. And yet, if that's going to be what we're trying to do, do not be surprised if people actually don't like that. And they disapprove of what you're doing and potentially even get upset or take offense. If you are of the world, the world would love you as its own. Because you are not of the world. But Jesus chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. See the logic? I have said all these things to you to keep you from falling away. Now, you might say to me, Of course, pastor, that's the world. That's the world for you. They're without Christ, without the scriptures. They're not the Lord's people. They're lost, misguided. Of course, they would be hostile. But I've experienced, pastor, hostility, even from believers, from those who profess to know Christ. I have 
I've been faithful to Christ, and for that reason, I've experienced hostility from believers, even those within the church, the visible people of God. They have opposed me. They have persecuted me, even though I was faithful to Christ. What does Jesus have to say about that? Well, let's keep reading to verse 2. They will put you out of the synagogues. Isn't that interesting? Jesus has been talking about hostility that his disciples will encounter, they should expect to encounter from the world. And one way he describes that hostility is they will put you out of their synagogues. He goes further. Indeed, the hour is coming when whoever kills you will think he is offering service to God. The world, you see, isn't just talking about Gentiles who don't know the scriptures in the Gospel of John. It's referring to all those who reject Christ, wherever and however they may be found. In point of fact, the primary persecutors that Jesus has in mind as he is warning his chosen apostles are in fact a deeply religious people. People who actually accept the same sacred scriptures of the Old Testament. The Jewish religious leaders of his day, the scribes and Pharisees. They boast that they know God. They are scholars and teachers of the Torah, the law of God revealed in the Old Testament. They search and study the scriptures. And as a group, they have wealth, status, influence, a historical pedigree that goes back generations. They even have nice buildings to meet in, synagogues all across the, the Greco-Roman world and the world of Palestine. And they have, of course, the, the building par excellence, the great Herodian temple with official stamp and seal of official approval and funding And Jesus, the promised Messiah, in those scriptures, and the soon-to-be-ascended King and Lord of all creation, says to his disciples, they will put you out of their synagogues. Think about that. Our Lord Christ, talking to his chosen, inspired apostles, the, the people he worked with. And what does he tell them? You want a nice building to meet in? You want the approval and acceptance of the established authorities? You won't get it. In fact, you will lose it. You will lose your membership. You will lose those buildings, the money, the status, the pedigree. Now, what relevance could that possibly have for the ACNA? a denomination that has faithfully and bravely stood for matters of biblical orthodoxy, even if that meant taking a hit on our bank account, leaving behind a nice building and wealth and assets besides. Do you have any idea how many of our denomination's parishes are like us, meeting in other churches' buildings, meeting in schools, storefronts, YMCAs, community centers, There are some parishes and congregations that have been able to retain their nice, historic, uh, beautifully designed churches or cathedrals, and we praise God for that. 
But when I see an Anglican church meeting in a school or, or sharing a building, I praise God for that too. In some ways, I praise God even more. Because there I see a church that one day, years ago, counted the cost. Faithfulness to Christ or worldly affluence? Faithfulness to Christ or whatever gets people through the door? Faithfulness to Christ or a building? When Archbishop Foley Beach was visiting Charleston, South Carolina, uh, either last year or the year before, there were a number of uh, historic Anglican parishes there that he could have gone to, even some ACNA parishes that were able to retain very nice, big, uh, you know, historic buildings from the Episcopal Church era. And yet, Archbishop Foley Beach, as he was visiting, did not visit one of those churches. He, there were pictures of him uh, visiting a small ACNA church meeting in a school auditorium, an elementary school. At our parish, wait, not, n- not parish, what was it last week? It was the synod, synod, there it is. At synod, I spent some time with the Reverend Henry Jansma. Henry is our canon theologian, means he, he knows all the theology and he, he helps keep us all honest as ministers. Uh, an old saint, some call him our resident Puritan. We're kindred spirits, he and I, really. He pastors a parish out in New Jersey. Uh, he, he's a very intelligent, warm, humble man, if you've ever got to meet him. Um, I knew he had a history serving in the Church of England in, in, uh, in previous years and then later the Episcopal Church. But I did not know that this man of God was in fact defrocked by the Episcopal Church 10 years ago this year. His crime... Well, his bishop had, uh, and those in his diocese, had adopted unbiblical views of human sexuality, which he found he could not support. And so he sought to come under the care of another bishop who did not share those views. And that was enough for Henry to be stripped of his right to preach and administer the sacraments and removed from office. They will throw you out of their synagogues. I was privileged to meet another priest who's seeking to come into our diocese. He was uh, born an American, a Texan, I believe, even. Uh, But he spent much of his adult life in Japan. He's fluent in Japanese, has a a Japanese wife now, and uh, he moved to Japan many years ago. Now get this, when he moved to Japan, he moved to Tokyo, one of the least churched cities in the world, and he was a non-Christian. But while he was studying there at university, a few Christians befriended him and invited him to a Bible study. And he met Jesus and came to saving faith in Christ in Tokyo, Japan. A white Western American coming to faith in Christ in Tokyo, Japan. Isn't that incredible? He stayed there, got married, became fluent, as I said, started a family, and became an ordained priest in the Japanese Episcopal Church Diocese of Tokyo. And he also began teaching at university in Tokyo as well, bivocational, like your own vicar. The Episcopal Church in Japan has been going through a similar route that the Episcopal Church in the U.S. has been going on as well. 
it became known that this faithful brother, in fact, holds to orthodox biblical views of scriptural authority, the exclusivity of salvation through faith in Christ, and marriage as defined between a man and a woman as the only proper context for sexual intimacy. And when that became known to his church authorities in just the past year or so, that was simply unacceptable to them. This brother, standing before the clergy of your diocese, told us, they took away my church, they took away my pulpit, they took away my right to administer the sacraments, and they took away my teaching position at university. But he But do you know what they couldn't take away? My passion to serve Christ and his church. They will throw you out of their synagogues. But John Calvin writes, Nothing is more to be desired than to be driven out of that assembly from which Christ is banished. When the powerful religious establishment with the money, the nice buildings, the influence, when they cast you out and spurn you because of your faithfulness to Jesus, why are they doing this? Because, Jesus says in verse 3, they have not known me nor the Father. They have not known me or the Father. They're very zealous. In fact, as they persecute you, they think they are doing this for God. They think they're offering service to God. You remember what Ben read from Deuteronomy 12? We were all paying very close attention, I trust. It described people being put to death for idolatry, right? And they thought that's what they're doing when they persecuted Christians. Think they're serving God. They think they're serving Christ. And yet... Zeal without knowledge is not a virtue. We must always be guided by God's word, the word of Christ. In verse four, Jesus reiterates why he's telling his disciples all of this. But I have said these things to you, that when their hour comes, you may remember that I've told them to you. There's a saying you've likely heard, forewarned is forearmed. We don't know the future. Jesus knows the future because he holds the future. And he has revealed to us not everything that we might wish to know, but what we need to know about the future to glorify him. And he does want you and I to know that we should expect hatred from the world. We can expect opposition and persecution from within and without the church from all those who reject his word. Now, it's, it's good to know this. It's good to have the proper expectation. But a question you might be having at this point is, how can I bear up under that? It's, not, it's no use being told that tomorrow, a 1,000 pound weight will be dropped on me if I don't have the strength to lift it. I get it. There's going to be suffering, opposition, Rejection, where am I going to get the strength I need to face that? The answer to that question is found in the answer to the question we asked at the beginning of this message. Why did Jesus ascend? 
The answer to that question from the gospel reading for this morning is this. Jesus ascended to send forth his spirit to his church. Let's look at verse 26 together. Before we read it, just so you're aware, one commentator says of this verse that we have more in this verse concerning the Holy Ghost than in any one verse besides in the Bible. So let's listen carefully for all the ways that the Holy Spirit is described in this verse, chapter 15, verse 26, and we will briefly consider some of those descriptors together. Verse 26. But when the Helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth, who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me. We can think of this verse in terms of who the Spirit is, what the Spirit does, and how he is sent to us. So first, who the Spirit is. The Spirit is a helper or comforter, parakletos. This word refers to one who appears in another's behalf, a mediator, intercessor, helper. This word is used of Jesus in 1 John 2, verse 1. We have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. So truth be told, it's not just the Spirit who is our helper or comforter. It's Jesus as well. The triune God, in fact, is our great helper. The Father is our helper in planning our salvation from eternity past, setting his love upon us apart from our works or deservings, choosing us to be saved in Christ and ordaining in his good time to send his Son and the Spirit to secure us for himself. The Son is our helper in accomplishing our salvation for us, in living the life we should have lived, dying the death we should have died, providing in that a perfect righteousness which can be credited to our account, though we are in ourselves ungodly. The Spirit is our helper in applying that salvation to us, working in us faith and repentance, uniting us to Christ, and bearing his fruit in our lives. He gives us comfort and encouragement and experiential knowledge of God's love through Christ. The Holy Spirit is described as also the spirit of truth. He's not a spirit of error. He is not opposed to truth. He is a spirit characterized by the truth. And finally, the Holy Spirit proceeds from the Father. This is who he is in his divine nature, proceeding from the Father, God from God, very God from very God, one with God, equal with Father and the Son, the same in substance, equal in power and glory. That's who the Spirit is. What the Spirit does, let us now consider. Primarily, the Holy Spirit is the one who testifies about Jesus. He will bear witness about me. The Spirit testifies to Christ, sealing on our hearts and our minds the truth of the gospel. You cannot separate the work of the Spirit from the word of the gospel of Christ. 
John Calvin wrote, The Spirit is said to testify of Christ because he retains and fixes our faith on him alone, that we may not seek elsewhere any part of our salvation. Spirit testifies about Jesus to our hearts in our lives. Finally, how the Spirit is sent. The Spirit is sent, notice, he is sent to us by the ascended Christ. This is why Jesus ascended. At least it's one central reason why that we are given here. Jesus ascended to the highest place so that he might give us the highest blessing. Jesus ascended into heaven so that he might send the heavenly gift to us. The spirit of Christ, the spirit of God, was indeed operative in the world and in the lives of God's people before Christ. But now it is the spirit of the risen and ascended Christ, poured out in fuller measure upon all of the Lord's people, consecrating them as God's holy temple. This is how we can have strength to follow Christ, even in the face of the world's hatred and opposition. Ascension leads to Pentecost. Jesus ascended that he might descend in the spirit to comfort us. He did not leave us as orphans, but he sent his own spirit to be with us. And so he does dwell with us by his spirit until his bodily return. Till then the Holy Spirit who is the spirit of Christ and of God dwells within us to comfort us in the midst of all our afflictions, to testify to our hearts of Christ and to prompt us to continue bearing witness in our hearts and lives. So we are comforted and strengthened to say that word above all earthly powers, no thanks to them abideth. The spirit and the gifts are ours through him who with us sideth. Let goods and kindred go, this mortal life also. The body they may kill, God's truth abideth still. His kingdom is forever. Let us pray. Lord Jesus, we praise you for your love and dying for us. And your love in speaking these words to your disciples so many years ago, speaking them to us as well. Strengthen us in the faith, and strengthen us by your spirit, that we might endure whatever hostility we might face, knowing that we are walking in your footsteps. Lord, we thank you for so great a salvation which we have by the spirit. May we never grieve him, but may we yield ourselves to him and his influence as he seeks to draw us to you and to your word. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.